so I'm putting that on the list, Kathy. You have to stay five minutes late after church. You can't go home. That's how it works. What am I going to do? I don't, what are you going to do? <laughs> De-ice the parking lot. Mm-hmm. There is no de-ice. Yeah, we, we've established that, right? <laughs> we don't have de-icer. Um, well, good morning. It's nice to see you all. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and we'll, we'll jump in. Uh, Lord, just in confessing and understanding, Lord, that what we're talking about is not something that we can master as mere humans. And um, Lord, I just love to come to that grip and that fact anytime that I teach your word. Uh, or speak about it, Lord, that these are, these are sacred things. These are, these are deep things, and these are your things. And Lord, you have graciously left us with doctrine and scripture and all these things for us to know about you. You want to be known. Um, and Lord, we just thank you for the blessing of that, just to take the time to really realize that you're not a distant God, that you've left us your word so that we can know you. So we get to do things like this morning to, to dive into redemption and salvation and to see your son, to see the cross, to understand it uh, in a way that we can understand it. So thank you, Lord, for the fact that while we're not, in, uh, we don't deserve necessarily to know about you, you don't have to, to share your attributes with us, but you do. So thank you so much for blessing us with that. Help me to be clear as, as uh, we teach this topic of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of you that don't know me, which I don't think there's any in here that don't, uh, my name is Dave Lundberg. I'm a deacon here. And I get the privilege of talking about this doctrine of salvation, part two. Um, technically, there should be 15 parts to this, <laughs> not two. Um, but Paul really likes to give us a challenge. So thank you, Paul. Um, R.C. Sproul has a wonderful, wonderful question he likes to ask. And the first time I heard him ask it, I was like, I love that. And I steal it every single time I get a chance to. And he always says, when someone says, ask him, are you saved? And he says, saved from what? What are you saved from? And I always think that's a great question. Because it really forces us to kind of think outside just that quick, you know, Jesus loves you. He died for you on the cross. If you place your faith in him, you're saved. That is great gospel truth. Nothing wrong with that. But when you ask yourself, what am I saved from, you start to enter the rabbit hole, right, of several doctrines that are kind of pillars that support this idea, this, this truth of what salvation is. Um, so we know that when we're saved, we have what's called union with Christ. We've been talking about that. What is union with Christ, right? What does that look like? What does that mean to be in Christ, um, there's scriptures all over the New Testament that talk about us being in Christ now that we're saved. Well, one of those um, other aspects of being in Christ is what we call applications of redemption, meaning we are redeemed. So what are some applications of being redeemed that are bestowed upon us, right? What is given to us when we are saved? What does salvation do for us? What are the benefits and blessings of being in union with Christ? So last week... Danny talked about justification. Danny brought up the Ordo Salutis. Uh, how many of you are familiar with the Ordo Salutis, just by way of hands? A couple? Okay. 
So the Ordo Salutis, I mean, we could teach weeks on this, and I don't want to have it be the main focus necessarily, but it is very important because the Ordo Salutis, uh, I'll get into it here in a bit, but it's essentially kind of a systematic tool for us to understand the stages of salvation. Because again, what are you saved from? Salvation is much more than just, I place my faith in God, my card's punched, I'm going to put it in my back pocket, I'm going to live life, and I'm going to be in heaven. There's so much more to that. So Danny talked specifically about justification last week. So when we're looking at salvation, we, we know there's, a, there's this term justification. And what I did is in your notes, I took out the paragraph that's in our new members booklet. I just want to read through that just as a recap from last week of what justification is. Because we're going to kind of build off of justification this morning. So justification, uh, this is again from our new members booklet. Because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, God no longer holds us responsible for paying our sins. All of our sins were forgiven, past, present, and future. Amen. Colossians 2, 13 through 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. Not only are our sins forgiven, but we are also justified. That is, we are declared righteous by God. So here's some important bullet points as a recap of what justification is. This is the meat of justification. Righteousness is a legal term. It speaks of a right standing before God. So justification is not us being righteous internally on our own. This is a righteousness coming from outside of us. It's a legal declaration that we are justified because of what Christ did. God considers the righteousness that Christ achieved as belonging to us. This is known as his active obedience. Jesus suffered and died in our place, considered as his passive obedience. And this declaration is a once-for-all permanent event in our lives that nothing can change. That last bullet will definitely spark some debate uh, in many places, but it's a wonderful truth. This declaration is a once-for-all permanent event in our lives that nothing can change. So justification is a righteous legal standing before the almighty judge. So not only is justification a wonderful doctrine, but there's even more that comes after justification. I mean, we can sit and just meditate on justification, the fact that it was by grace alone that God has justified us. We can be in relationship with him, and those are wonderful truths, but there's these amazing things that happen after that, and that's what I'm going to focus on this morning. So the aim in this study is really to unpack these other applications of redemption. Um, so the order salutis, we're going to talk about that. It's on your worksheet there. This is what helps us to better understand the process of salvation. So the order salutis, think of it as stages throughout salvation. Now, one important thing is not to get this confused with timing. Some people will look at the Ordo Salutis and, and think of that in sense of timing. Like, okay, I'm justified. Well, the next step is adoption. So I'm adopted right away in sanctification. So now I'm sanctified perfectly. Like this all happens right when you accept Christ. That's not what the Ordo Salutis is meant for. It's not a timing. And we all know that as Christians, we all grow differently, right? I mean, some people just explode right away in, in holiness and just their, their walk with the Lord. And some people, it's a slow, 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 slow burn. 
Um, so don't look at the Ordo Salutis as a timing, but look at it more as these are the stages in redemption. Um, two things to note before diving in. There is a disagreement, just to put all the cards out on the table. When you look at the Ordo Salutis, there's a huge disagreement within the Protestant church over the order between mainly the Calvinistic uh, view of salvation and the Arminian view of salvation. So let's look at the Ordo Salutis real quick in your notes there. You see there's foreknowledge, effectual call, conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. So the Calvinist view really holds to a lot happening before time even began, where God foreordained those whom he would save, known as the elect. He elected those whom he would save. And then that then leads to what's known as the effectual call. And that's where God calls. This is different than the general call of the gospel, but through the gospel message, God draws his elect to himself. This is also known as irresistible grace, to where he opens your eyes through regeneration, to see the wonder and the beauty of Christ to where you have no option but to want him and to desire him. Uh, and then that leads to then your conversion, and then you are justified, and you get the blessings, and you have perseverance. The Armenian view more starts at evangelism, that more general gospel call, right? The, the call goes out generally to all, and then, um, and then people activate their faith goes out to the masses, and those who say, yes, this is a good, this is a good thing, I'm going to choose it, they activate their faith, and then that, that activation of faith then leads to their conversion, which then leads to the blessings. Um, however, it changes, though, when the perseverance aspect comes up, because their salvation may last until the very end of their time, or it may not. It really depends on them holding on to it, um, as things can change. So I just want to call that out on the Ordo Salutis. Um, the order is, can differ between an Arminian or Calvinistic point of view. Um, and all these steps are backed by Scripture, and we just don't have the time to get into that this morning. We're covering a lot. Um, so know that. Um, but today we're going to look at these last four. So if you see foreknowledge, the effectual call, conversion, justification. Danny, again, talked about justification last week. These are works kind of that are happening outside of us. These are the things God is doing while we're kind of just living our life. God has been working in the past, um, and, and he's been doing these things outside of us. These last four that we're going to talk about this morning, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. Yes, we're going to talk about all four of those in 35 minutes. So <laughs> this is going to be a very high-level overview in my boss life. Yeah. We should be having one of these each week, and that still wouldn't be enough time. But my hopes, though, is that this will at least whet your appetite enough of whichever one you're like, man, I want to know more about this. And you'll go dive in or take Paul out to lunch and let him explain it all to you. <laughs> but these last four aspects are what happens inside of us, okay? So God calls us to himself. We place our faith and trust in him. We repent, and we become justified. Awesome. But what happens next? Well, let's start with adoption. Again, these are the, the applications of redemption. Adoption. This is where the elect are placed into the family of God. In adoption, God legally places regenerated and justified sinners into his family so that they become sons and daughters of God and thus enjoy all the rights and privileges of one who is a member of God's eternal family. 
So saying the word adoption, how can we relate this concept of adoption as we know it today to us being adopted into God's family? What are some of the things that come to mind? Yeah, if we think about adoption today, that takes place. How can we connect that to us being adopted into God's family? Like, what does that look like? Take on a new name? Okay, yeah. Yeah. Legally binding. New identity. New life comes with that, right? Absolutely, that's a really good point. You're going into this new family and all that they've already had and have is now you have access to. It's now yours, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, Cel like a celebratory, welcomed in. Yeah. And that can get even at the, at the most simplest form, that can even say like your skin color is different than your family and you call them mom and dad, that's really weird, right? Like you're, all those things don't matter when you become adopted because you become officially uh, a child of, of God. You got something, Carol? Yeah. And that's a perfect segue. I didn't pay Carol to say that, by the way. This is not staged. Perfect segue to the next point. <laughs> but um, no, the fact that we've been adopted into God's family brings a ton of significance if you really start thinking about it. Because it, it, it says something about who we belong to before. So like if we're just looking at this, okay, wow, we've been adopted into God's family. Well, what happened over here? Where were we over here? And that's, that's a place our mind doesn't naturally go to, right? Because we're just like, great, hey, we're here, but who was I over here? Well, Scripture helps us to understand that, that prior to adoption into God's family, we were essentially spiritual orphans. So James talked about that last week a little bit. He was trying to steal my thunder and was talking about how we are spiritual orphans prior to salvation. Uh, Ephesians 2 calls us children of wrath, uh, sons of disobedience. Uh, John 8, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, but... This can be applied to all of humanity where we're, we're children of the devil. It talks about us doing our father's desires when we sin. And because this uh, topic of adoption is, is often not taught in depth, and it really isn't if you think about it. I mean, when was the last time you really heard a sermon specifically just preached on adoption? Or even a class like this talking about adoption? Um, it can often be confused with what justification means. So I want to... Uh, look at these distinctions here. It's in your notes. 
Um, this is important to know so we can draw a clear line between justification and adoption. Uh, adoption. What are the, they are distinct, so what do they mean? Well, we know justification is a legal declaration that one is permanently righteous before the divine judge and his laws, where adoption it in of itself is a legal declaration as well. This is a declaration that the one justified has additionally been made a member of the divine judge's family. So that word additionally is pretty cool if you think about it. Um, one of the books I was reading, they called adoption, where, where God is full of grace, has a, has a lot of grace. This book called adoption, a super abundance of God's grace. And I love that, right? Because if you think about it, he didn't have to, one, save us. God didn't have to save us at all. But he did. He placed his grace on us. He regenerated us. He gave us a new heart. Thank you, God. That's awesome. He justifies us. And he doesn't just, you know, pat us on the butt and say, there you go, little one. You're welcome. He goes even further than that. So where justification is enough for us, he then takes it to a whole other level where he says, hey, guess what? I'm going to adopt you now. You're going to be in my family. How cool is that? And this is a huge blessing that many of us can miss. Um, been reading through this Great Doctrines of the Bible uh, by Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he, he has this one comment I wanted to read. I thought it was pretty, pretty interesting. This is in regards to just this topic of adoption and how little we hear about it um, or want to even know about it. He says, now we must not say this, uh, with this, but I do beg of you again to consider the order of these doctrines and to notice that the doctrine of adoption comes at this particular point. Here again, we have a most glorious subject, which is most encouraging and comforting to the believer. And yet, once more, for some inexplicable reason, it is a doctrine about which we rarely hear. How often have you heard addresses or sermons on it? Why is that? Even as evangelical people, we neglect and indeed seem to be unaware of some of the most com comforting and encouraging doctrines which are to be found in the scriptures. Um, adoption is one of those. It's very comforting, encouraging, um, and it's also significant because it also clearly draws lines between um, what humanity may think the relationship between them and God looks like, just in general. When we talk about God in a broad sense, Adoption really helps to draw some distinct lines between that. So a few years ago, I accidentally got into a debate with a colleague who was a Christian. Uh, and I say accidentally because I didn't know that this was even debatable. Uh, but shame on me because I guess we can debate about anything these days. So uh, <laughs> shame on me there. But he had made this comment that we are all children of God. All, every, every bit of humanity is a child of God. And I thought that was interesting. And I was like, so you believe that, you know, the entire population of earth are all God's children. And in Christmas songs we hear, you know, Santa knows we're all God's children. And these things kind of get ingrained. So we were having this, like, really in-depth conversation about it. And it made me think, like, if this was the case, then, then what do we do with this doctrine of adoption? Why do we have it? Right? Like, what... Why would one need to be adopted into a family into which they were already a part of? Well, we need to look at this further, right? Because it's a good question. Aren't we all God's children? Well, I learned that this is a popular view amongst evangelicals. And, of course, it comes with a fancy name. <laughs> and that fancy name is universal fatherhood. So there's universal fatherhood and redemptive 
fatherhood. So I have this in your notes. And this is another distinction that we should take a closer look at. So universal fatherhood is a liberal Protestant teaching that all human beings are God's children by default. You're born into the world, you are God's child. Redemptive fatherhood teaches that human beings who were once orphans, alienated from God, are newly adopted into his family upon conversion. We didn't start out as God's child, but we became God's child once we were saved and adopted. See, I think what my good friend was getting at when it was all said and done after the endless weeks of debate that we didn't have to have if we would have cleared this up right away, was he was thinking, well, God's the creator of everybody. So if he creates them, then of course they're his children. And that's a great point, and that is true. Um, there's a lot of scriptures that speak of humanity being God's offspring, uh, talking about the father of all, the father of light. But there's a huge distinction between the creation assumption or association. So there's a creation association and a personal relational association with God. So while God is the creator of all, and the Bible speaks to us as children of God, there's no relational aspect there. And we know of that, right, from what happened in the fall uh, in Genesis. That right there kind of tells the story of what happened to us relationally with God. Um, you know, immediately in Genesis, we were, man was, was physically separated from God, but most importantly, they were relationally separated from God. And that's the story we tell in the, in the sin account. There was physical separation, but there was relational separation, and that was the kicker. As a result, other scriptures in contrast humanity between things like children of the flesh and children of, the, of God. Uh, contrast children of the slave woman and children of the free woman. Children of light and children of darkness. Sons of disobedience. Children of wrath. So this teaches us that the natural fallen state of man is in fact as an orphan of what we talked about before. And when it comes to their relationship with the living God, the only relationship they have with God is as a judge. It's an interesting thing to think about. Humanity's only relationship with God is as a judge. God is their judge. He was our judge. And you will face him. But those that have been adopted into his family, they no longer stand with God as judge, but now he's their loving father. And that's the distinction. Judge or loving father. And that's what the relationship we have with him when we become adopted into his family. And this is the beauty of adoption. The Lord not only declares us righteous, but then he brings us into his family where we can now call him Abba, Father, and have this relationship. So on your sheet, I have a little section of just notes to take away of like application or blessings, but what are some takeaways or blessings um, considering that we've been adopted into God's family when we were once alienated from it that you can think of? Seal of the Holy Spirit. Getting all doctrinal on me. I like that. Wow. What else? What are some other applications or just good blessings, taking takeaways from this, this truth that we're adopted into God's family? Security. Security. Yeah. I have an interesting one. Discipline. We get, this, we, get to be, we get to be disciplined by God. <laughs> Yay. But that's a good thing. Um, that could be a whole lesson in of itself too. 
The law is beautiful. I delight in your law. And we can delight in your law, yeah. That's a great point, yep. And it could easily, just so easily, just be blurred into that just one big pool. We're yeah, just, yeah. Yep. Yep. It is, isn't it an interesting thing to consider, like, your adoption into God's family? If you're all believers here this morning, like, that is a beautiful thing to just meditate on. I mean, th- this is, out of all four of these, this is one I've still just been chewing on um, this last week because it's just been a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and all the things that flow from it, which lead to our next point here, which is sanctification. Um, I think this, this doctrine of sanctification really kills that universal fatherhood um, concept because once God adopts us, something happens then. We don't just come into the family and we go play video games in our bedroom and just sit there idle until we die, right? Like, God puts us to work. He starts doing something in us, and that is sanctification. So if all of creation were God's children, then he would therefore then have to be sanctifying them, and we, we clearly know that the world is not being sanctified. Um, so what is sanctification? Well, sanctification is where the elect progressively grow in holiness. The elect progressively grow in holiness. In sanctification, God working especially by the Holy Spirit separates the believer unto himself and makes him increasingly holy, progressively transforming him into the image of Christ by subduing the power of sin in his life and enabling him, that's the key word, enabling him to bear the fruit of obedience in his life. So sanctification can essentially mean two things uh, when it comes to the definition. It's setting something apart for honorable uh, use. You see this in the Old Testament, like in the tabernacle, the vessels, even like the cups and things were sanctified. Uh, so the Bible speaks of sanctification with just even objects, 
They were sanctified. They were set apart for the priests only to use in the worship of God. But it also means uh, to consecrate something, to make something holy, clean. So those are kind of the two different uses of the word. Um, and sanctification is used throughout many religions. Um, but often I think when it's used in other religions, it's kind of used as the way we understand justification. They kind of just mash the two together. Where justification and sanctification are essentially the same thing. So there's distinctions here we want to obviously make um, to draw those clear lines. So justification we know is the legal declaration that one is permanently righteous before the divine judge and his laws. This is an imputation of Christ's righteousness as we talked about before, right? It's not in us. It's, it's alien. It's coming from Christ to us. He's crediting us with his righteousness. Very important to understand in justification. Sanctification is a gradual ongoing transformation of one's nature. Sanctification is an ongoing transformation of one's nature after the new birth. This is an impartation of righteousness. So where we have justification, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, credited to us. Sanctification, righteousness, it's an impartation. So we're now given, we're granted the ability to start bearing good fruit from within. That's the difference. So what is it that grants us this ability to, to bear this good fruit? Who said that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what is that change that all of a sudden now, like, oh, we've been imparted righteousness. I can start doing things that are pleasing to the Lord. I think that key change is it's the Holy Spirit that, that we are then given. So this helps to make sense then of, the Holy Spirit's role in our salvation and how beautiful that is, how important it is to have the Holy Spirit. Again, I'm going to keep comparing these to that punch card idea of salvation where I put my faith in Christ, I, I believe he's real, I place my faith, I get my card punched, and I'm just going to live life the rest the way I want to, and I'm good. These are all these things that are happening. So we get the Holy Spirit, and this is how then we can start producing these, these good works. Um... It's also cool to, to understand the next time that you, you bear good fruit, whatever that may be, the next time you do something that's glorifying to the Lord, it could be just even praying that when you go home and pray, that is sanctification working in you. Like, you want a practical application, there it is. That's cool to think. The next time you do something that glorifies God, that is good and pleasing, that is good fruit, that's sanctification right now working in you. That's really cool to think about. And it's important, again, to understand the distinction, right, between justification and sanctification. If the two were combined, and that would basically be the Roman Catholic view of justification and sanctification, where um, they basically, being justified has to directly coincide with the sanctification. You have to be perfectly righteous, and you have to do that on your own. And um, so if you, if you kind of mesh the two together, then that's what you're going to get. And that's why it's very important to draw lines between justification and sanctification. Because if you mash the two, then you're talking about a completely different gospel. So I have those definitions of justification, sanctification. Hold on to those. Those are very helpful to know how to split those apart. So how does sanctification work? We know that justification gives us our legal righteous standing. But what are we to expect then from the, this transformational work um, within us? And the best way to make sense of this is through three stages. 
Um, there's a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense of sanctification. This first one is called positional sanctification. And this is your past tense aspect of, uh, this is an aspect of sanctification that starts at regeneration. So when we're given the new birth, this is where man's overall nature is immediately changed, given light from darkness, freedom from the power of sin. So the best way to think of this positional sanctification is really, it's the key that unlocks our ability to now start producing good works. This is like, it starts the engine, right? Positional sanctification. So when we're saved, not within us, there's not this 100% purity righteousness from within right away, right? Again, that, that's imputed to us from Christ. But this now is that key that unlocks that engine that's going to help us to start producing these, this good fruit, these good works by the power of the Holy Spirit. The present tense is called progressive sanctification. This is a continual act of sanctification throughout the entirety of the Christian life. Though the bonds or enslavement of sin are broken, the Christian's heart is still not totally purified. Thus, sin and flesh remain and continually need to be put to death. There's now a battle that wages between the flesh and the spirit. So this is where we're all in right now, where we struggle with that flesh versus uh, Holy Spirit nature, right? Uh, and this is where I think we can get down on ourselves or really confused about, well, what? Aren't I justified? Like, aren't I saved? Why am I still doing this? Why am I still sinning? This hopefully helps to give you some... Um, better understanding of just sanctification is taking place in you. Yes, you are saved. You are justified. And you are doing good works. And yes, you are sinning still because we're in this process of what's called progressive sanctification. And then the future tense would be perfected sanctification. It kind of speaks for itself, right? This is where the sinner is fully perfected into the image of Christ. And this is, kind of falls into that um, topic of glorification, which we'll hit at the end here. So hopefully this quick overview of sanctification helps to just make a little bit of sense of this battle that we fight back and forth between our flesh and our sin. And, you know, the struggle, we see Paul wrestle with this in Scripture, right? Where he's like, um, I don't do what I want, but the things I hate, I do. That, that's where we're kind of all at right now. Um, so what are some of the takeaways and blessings that you can think of or that come to mind when we talk about sanctification? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the effectual call is, it, there's a general call and an effectual call. The general call is the gospel. The, the general call is really the gospel that goes out to everyone. The general call is when you get up in the morning and you see the sunrise and you see the clouds and you see nature, you know there's a God. That's, that's the general calling. The effectual call is there's intention behind it. There's purpose. It's God. Basically, uh, it makes me think of um, no one can come to the Father unless... He draws them, right? Um, that's what's happening. It's that drawing in unto himself. And then that is where then regeneration takes place during that process. Uh, sanctification, blessings, applications. Yep. Yeah.
Yeah. That'd be a little overwhelming. Yeah, and you bring up a good point, too, because I, I honestly, I fall into this trap all the time where I think of a graph, because I want to just simplify it so much, that if you start at zero, this is us before regeneration, this is us just before God, and then think of a, you know, your y-axis, x-axis, and then here's 100, and then by the time you die, you're going to be at 100. And that's, I, you, it seems simple, right? Like, you know, there's going to be some bumps and stuff, but you should be doing this. And, and that, there's truth there. Like, you hear, like, a, a born-again Christian should grow. When you look back the last 20 years, there should be fruit and growth there. And that is true. But you've got to be careful not to fall in that trap, too. I mean, that's what made me think of was, okay, well, you know, I was saved 30 years ago, so I should be, like, 50% of the graph. And when I'm 80, I'm going to be up here. So that's not... 100% is, is glorification. Like, that's not the goal. We're going to have these ebbs and flows, and we're going to have big dips and high highs. And so, anyway, that made me think of that. Um, Philippians 1.6 is a great reminder to me of the doctrine of sanctification. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it um, to the, uh, at the day of Christ. There is this ongoing work. He is doing the work. And he's not like that construction worker that shows up and then just leaves three-quarters of the way through the project that you hear, right? That horror story of like, well, they left. They're not going to finish the house. God's going to finish the house. He's working. He's, he's sanctifying you. Yeah, I am. You're going to say Paul did that when he had a construction company? <laughs> it's kind of weird you raised your hand right at that moment. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yep. That, that, that makes you think of John Piper, like everything to the glory of God. Brush your teeth to the glory of God and eat your snacks to the glory of God. And I love that one. I eat my snacks to the glory of God all the time. Uh, let's look at our next one, perseverance. The, uh, this is where the elect remain in Christ. This is a big one. And this is a big one that um, gets a lot of attention as well. And I think, I mean, I see it, I know through kind of a, 
a specific lens, but I think it makes sense when you look at Scripture and when you understand the power behind our salvation and these applications of redemption, and we'll talk about that here in a minute. So the elect remain in Christ. All those who are truly born of the Spirit and united to Christ by faith are kept secure in him by God's power and thus will preserve in faith until they go to be with Christ in death. So this is where the term perseverance of the saints comes from. It's one of the five points of Calvinism that essentially teaches um, from what you may have heard or be more familiar with of eternal security, um, though I, I have a lot of issues with that statement um, <laughs> when, you, when you use different words like security. But that's basically what we're talking about here is like once saved, always saved in layman's terms that you're probably used to hearing. Um, and this is another beautiful piece of doctrine that's often misunderstood completely. Uh, and I would venture to say that's most likely because People seek to answer this question, like once you're saved, are you always saved? I think people try to answer this question by only looking in, at themselves, at man. They, they're looking in the wrong places for this answer. And what I mean is that these answers are often sought through the behaviors of uh, a person or their actions, right? We all have that person that was on fire for God, uh, could have been a family member that now completely has walked away from the faith. So, of course, you're going to look at that and be like, well, I guess you can lose your salvation. That's our proof outside of Scripture, and, and rightfully so in that sense, right? You're seeing. Like, I've seen it with my own eyes, Dave. You can lose your salvation because I had a, an aunt or an uncle or a brother who was a preacher, and now he's not. So he lost his salvation. Uh, and no doubt that that can leave us thinking this, but... We know that when we look at things through experience or feelings outside of God's word, especially that it's just not a trustworthy source. We can't trust our feelings and our emotions, even if it seems like, hey, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but there is a guarantee in the perseverance of our faith. And, it, and the beauty of this guarantee and why we have a guarantee is because it doesn't rely on us. It's the complete opposite, actually, that it's the Trinity that's holding us in our faith. It's not ourselves. I know Piper used to talk about this a lot of this idea of like, well, if you woke up in the morning and just chose God, you woke up and you're like, I'm sick of my life, I'm choosing God, then what's to say that you're not going to wake up another morning and choose not to follow him if you don't have these beautiful doctrines holding together, which are found, especially in, in you know, this golden chain of redemption that we see. So, the power behind our preservation is the Trinity. This is a really cool point. Um, this really helped me to understand it better, too, because I would always think, oh, yeah, God holds us, you know, we're, we're secure. But you have all three members of the Trinity securing your faith right now as you sit. That's power. We see in Scripture the unchanging love, infinite power, and saving will of the Father, our salvation began in eternity past. See, it didn't just start when we just decided to become a Christian. In eternity past, this power of God had set his love on his people. And he put them into Christ's care before the world began. That his son was going to be their mediator and ensure that none would be lost. That's important to understand. So here, you, the God, before the creation of the world, is already putting things in place to ensure this is going to happen. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 
John 6, 37 through 40, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Romans 8, 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I would even add in there, or yourself. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So next we see Christ's work uh, in preserving us, the efficacy of the cross and the efficacy of his present intercession in our life. Just as the Father's predestining purpose fully achieves its desired end, so also the Son's redeeming work accomplishes its design with perfect efficacy. So what were Jesus' final words on the cross? It is finished. What's finished? Him dying on the cross? Like, okay, I'm done dying. It's finished. Like, there's some deep meaning behind those words, right? It is finished. He secured salvation for God's elect. That day on the cross, it was done. This whole process that we're talking about in the Order of Salutis was done, completed. It is finished. It's an accounting term. That means it's paid in full. It is finished does not mean I've opened up the tab, so the more the merrier, come unto me. It is finished means the tab is closed, paid in full. So this perfect son is now our high priest who also is interceding for us. Every morning we wake up, you have Christ Jesus interceding on your behalf. Every time you pray to the Father, guess who's there? Why can you pray to the Father? Because Christ is there, your high priest. Every time you sin, you have your high priest. So fam, every day Christ is our mediator. He's, we're not just sitting here just saved waiting for heaven. There's these things that are going on. So we have the power of the Father we have the power of Christ, the Son, and now we have the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit. Kath, I think you brought this up. Um, all who have the Holy Spirit within them, all who are truly born again have God's unchanging promise and guarantee that the inheritance of eternal life in heaven will certainly be theirs. God's own faithfulness is pledged to bring it about. This is huge. See, in Paul's day, when he talks about a seal, um, this was something expressed as a commitment of security, authentication. When someone put their seal on something, it, it was ownership. It was going to happen. And this is what he's talking about, that the Holy Spirit is now our seal. So if you get the Holy Spirit and it is your seal, it's God's commitment, guarantee that you are now his. How, the seal can't be broken, right? Understanding the Trinity's role in our preservation, it leaves no room to believe that we can just simply break free from it. You're essentially saying that you could break free from the power of the Father, the, the efficacy of what Christ did on the cross, his interceding for you every day, and you're breaking free from the Holy Spirit that has now been implanted in deep inside of your heart. Or as if you can be unregenerated, right? Scripture tells us we're born again. 
when we receive the Holy Spirit? Well, thinking of it on this other side that, no, I can just let go of it all. That's almost like thinking, it's almost like a refund at a store. Like you're just taking something back and like, I don't want it anymore. So then the Holy Spirit just gets unplugged from you. Your justification status goes away. You know what I'm saying? Like it just doesn't make sense. And there's no guarantee behind that. That's not a, there's no hope in that. But there is hope in the Trinity. There's hope in the power of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm getting short on time, so I'm going to jump right into glorification. Um, this is a quick, quick lesson because glorification, I don't want to dare stand up here and tell you what heaven's going to be like and all these things outside of what we know. And also this kind of dabbles into end times uh, type uh, views where they can kind of shift a little bit on glorification, but not the big picture. And that's where I'm, I'm staying up here. You can, again, take Paul out to lunch if you want to talk about end time stuff. Um, glorification is when the elect will receive a resurrected body and be free from the presence of sin. Amen. Glorification is the radical transformation of both the body and the soul of the believers, perfecting them in holiness and thereby fitting them for eternal life on the new earth in perfect communion with the triune God. This is an interesting truth because it really has two parts. There's a focus of glorification on our physical bodies, and there's an aspect of glorification on our soul. Um, I always had kind of thought glorification was like just this final status, you're perfect now, you know, which it is. But it really does involve kind of this two-step process of our physical bodies. So what happens when we die? Well, you're, you leave your body. Your soul goes immediately up to heaven. And we know that. There's a lot of scriptures that support that. The thief on the cross was one of them. Uh, Paul talking about, I'd rather be absent in the body and be with Christ, but I know I need to be here. So when you die, your body is left, and your soul goes up to be with the Lord. But it doesn't stay that way forever because glorification occurs when we get new bodies. And that is incredible because these new bodies we're going to have are bodies the way that they were meant to be in the garden before sin. What does a body with no sin look like? I don't know, but it sounds cool. And I finally get to get rid of my Green Day tattoos. So, and I don't have to pay for it. So, <laughs> but seriously, if you sit and think about just glorified bodies, what an amazing, your mind can go so many places with that. Like, what does that even look like? But it's a cool process of glorification of what happens. Um, secondly, we're going to experience glorification of the soul. And this is where we're finally fully conformed to the image of the risen, exalted, and glorified Redeemer. This is when we're one 100% free from sin. I don't even know what that looks like. And I can't tell you what it looks like. But it's going to be glorious. I mean, what, is, what does it look like being alive in, you know, in the flesh, present with no sin in you? Uh, it's just You can go endless thoughts of what that looks like. Conversations where you're not judging somebody or arguing with them. Or, I mean, it's just endless, endless things. So there's not really much more I could say here other than the fact that we're going to be perfect. Um, sin won't be around on this final process of glorification. And this is when this whole process that we're talking about of salvation is complete. And we get to be with the Lord forever and eternity with perfect bodies and uh, perfect hearts. So this application of redemption, adoption, sanctification... Uh, perseverance, glorification, there's an easy way to remember these distinctions. I put it here on the bottom. These three things, these are ones that kind of get confused a lot with others. 
So there's these three Ps that are really helpful to understand the distinctions. And this is justification. We are free from the penalty of sin. So think of it as we are free from the penalty of sin. Sanctification, we are free from the power of sin. And glorification, we are free from the very presence of sin. Free from the penalty, free from the power, and free from the presence of sin. Last thoughts, we gotta wrap up. I do wanna pray, but any last thoughts on any of this before we conclude? I can't wait for the glorified body. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) You'll have a six pack probably too, so think about that. (laughs) Anything else? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought that when I was newly saved and even years after, I thought it was pretty much that. Like, Christ did his job and it's done. And now I'm going to do mine. You know, I, I just got to, you know, Every day, just try to glorify him. And I, but I was missing all the work that's being done in me every day. And, that, and that's, I think, the biggest takeaway, too, is, like I said, today, when, when something good fruit in your life is done, like, think, like, that's sanctification happening right now. That's cool. And, and it just leads to better worship. So I hope all of this really helps to give you an appetite more. Because this, this is not just it. Like, now, congratulations, here's your certificate. You know the order salutis your scholars, like dive in. Adoption alone, there's books upon books upon books about adoption, and it is beautiful. Sanctification, glorification. So hopefully this at least whet your appetite enough to know what these words mean, and they're not scary words, you know, that only scholars. These are things that are happening to us practically. These are not outside of you. Each one of us can relate to these. Um, so I would encourage you to study, study these things, not on YouTube. Um, don't study them on YouTube. Buy books, good books that are here to study them. <laughs> so I'm going to pray. Um, please pray with me. Lord, thank you for these truths. God, uh, you're, I just love how the more that we discover you, the more your kindness, your grace, your mercy, these, these things that we sing about, these kind of Christian buzzwords come to life and they, they, um, they get, kind of get implanted into our heart. Um, Lord, you are so good. And there's just endless, endless reasons of why you're good and lord how we can we can we can do sunday school for the rest of our lives and never run out of material or things to go over about you um, because that shows your immeasurable kindness to us so thank you lord we worship you i pray you would prepare our hearts to worship you here um, soon with singing and with the preaching of your word open our ears we just pray that you would bless jeff as he um 
presents your word to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, thanks everyone. You bet.